Hello, and welcome to the Real Beal Podcast. I'm your host, TJ Beal. My wife told me that I'm so full of random information that I should start a podcast as a release. So I did. Each week, I'll be discussing a topic that I find interesting, and hopefully, you'll find it interesting too. Let's get started. So for this episode, I wanted to talk about the Supreme Court. Everybody's heard of the Supreme Court and some of their cases, but I don't think most people know the stories behind the cases or why the Supreme Court is really that important. Now, I was going to talk about some of my favorite Supreme Court cases, both the good and the bad, along with the weird. But I decided this podcast needs to be more upbeat, more lighthearted, and I didn't think about talking about a bunch of complicated cases really fit into that. I actually previously recorded this episode where I did talk about these things and ended up running over half an hour, and that just wasn't something that I was interested in. So we're going to talk about six of my favorite weird Supreme Court cases. And I'm going to talk about why they're weird, why I like them, and the surprising implications that some of them have moving forward. Now, most people probably haven't heard of any of these cases. And if you had, good for you. You're a part of this weird club. Um, but I enjoy all of them. So uh, let's get started. Let's get into it. And let's see if we can learn something new. So the first case that I want to talk about is this case called Nix versus Hedden. It's actually an 1893 case. Uh, I studied this in my first semester in law school. So the case goes like this. From a botanist standpoint, the tomato is a fruit. So fruit is just a plant's ripened ovary. So the tomato is as much of a fruit as an apple or a banana is. In fact, the pumpkin, the cucumber, the zucchini, the chili pepper, all of those are fruits. But in the 1880s, the port of New York was taxing tomatoes like vegetables. This tax rate was higher for vegetables than it was for fruit. So the port of New York decided it was going to get its money and go after tomatoes as vegetables. Now, the Nix family imported a lot of tomatoes. So they decided they wanted to sue to get all the back taxes... Um, they've been paying. They said, well, a tomato's a fruit. We shouldn't be paying this tax rate for vegetables. And they thought that they had this objective definition of a fruit on their side. But turns out that the court sided with Edward Hedden, the collector of the Port of New York. The court decided to follow the spirit of the law rather than the letter. Most people consider savory items like tomatoes to be vegetables, So the law presumably included tomatoes under this vegetable umbrella. Now this tax law in question is now long gone, but the ruling has implications for related cases today. I think the best way that I can explain this is with pillows. The United States imports pillows that are shaped like stuffed animals. Are they pillows or are they stuffed animals? Now, At first, this question shouldn't seem like it's all that important. But the fact of the matter is, pillows are tariffed, but stuffed animals aren't. So when you look at this case, you got to ask the question, do most people think of 
animal-shaped pillows as stuffed animals or as pillows? And I don't know the answer to that. And I'm, as far as I can tell, there's never been a court case to decide that. But this case has really set up the groundwork that that's how this is supposed to be decided. And it's still good law. It's never been reversed. And it's actually still cited pretty often in other tax cases. Now, the second case I wanted to talk about is this case called Estru versus Capado. So it's only from 2012. It's rather recent. And this case is kind of shocking when you think about the conclusion that the Supreme Court came to. So Robert Capado died of cancer in 2002. But in the year leading up to his death, he regularly made some deposits at a sperm bank. So his wife still would have the chance to have children after he had passed on. His wife, Karen, actually gave birth to a set of twins 18 months after he died. Karen sought some survivorship benefits from the Social Security Administration uh, for these children, but she was denied. You see, the Social Security Administration said that the twins didn't fit the definition of a child under the Social Security Act. This definition covered natural-born children, adopted children, and stepchildren. But it said nothing about children conceived artificially after the father's death. Now, Mrs. Capato's argument was that these children didn't need to fit into any kind of definition. They didn't need to meet any kind of special requirements. They were the biological offspring of two legally married people. So they should have been entitled to these benefits, right? Well, the Supreme Court unanimously rejected this argument. As they said that the legislators, when they wrote the Social Security Act in 1939, never could have even imagined that this birth would be possible. Just that technology wasn't advanced. We weren't even close to getting to that point. And so when they wrote this law, they never could have even imagined that there would be a category of children like this. And because of that, this umbrella of children couldn't expand to cover Mrs. Capato's children. So they had to reject the benefits. The court decided that this issue, while terrible, and while they wish it could have been decided differently, is an issue for Congress to fix, not an issue for the court to fix. They basically said, you know what, that sucks, but it's not really our job to fix it. You're going to have to go talk to Congress. And this is actually something the Supreme Court does pretty often. They talk about issues that, well, you know, we wish we could resolve this another way, or we wish we could resolve this at all, but Congress hasn't acted, or they've acted in a way that prohibits us from considering this. And that's exactly what happened in this case. The third case is the chicken case. Well, it's actually called United States versus Cosby. It's from 1946. And to understand this case, uh, you need to understand a little bit about what's called the common law. Now, the common law is this judge-made law that goes back centuries. It originated in England. And... It was adopted in the United States when we were still colonies. We brought over the common law with us. 
And most of the legal principles and doctrines that we have in the United States stem from this common law. But this common law has long held that property ownership extends to the space above and below the ground. This right gives landowners, among other things, mining rights or mineral rights over their land. That's why, for example, in Texas, you can sell or lease your minimal, mineral rights to oil and gas companies. Or when you sell your land, when you move, you can sever those rights and you can retain your mineral rights. It's just another one of these property rights that's included in your ownership. And this doctrine goes back to at least the 13th century. And it's, it's best explained... Um, in the common law by this phrase. Whoever owns the soil, it's theirs, all the way up to heaven and all the way down to hell. Everything, everything that is above and below your land is yours. But this doctrine was changed in 1946 because of some chickens. Now, that's a bit of a jump, but let me explain. Thomas Lee Cosby owned a chicken farm in the 1940s. And this chicken farm was pretty close to a North Carolina military airstrip. The sounds of these low-flying planes would scare the chickens into running straight at the side of their coops, usually to their own death. Now, after losing 150 chickens, Cosby had to give up his farm. So he decided he was going to sue the federal government for compensation under the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment, which is most commonly thought of as the eminent domain clause. Now, the issue here is the Supreme Court decided to reject this common law principle. Well, not fully reject it, but modify it. They ruled that while landowners do own the air immediately above their property, they don't own the air infinitely upward. This changed the amount of space that a landowner owns to not infinite, but to the safe space as to which various airplanes can take off and land near the property. And that distance works out to between 300 and 1,000 feet, give or take. Depending on the type of aircraft, whether it's day or night, all of that plays a role. Now... The planes that were flying over Cosby Farm flew below that. So Cosby did win his case, and he did get compensation from the government. But the government actually got a win itself. See, without this ruling, and without modifying this doctrine, airlines would have to apply for tens of thousands of permits for any long-distance flight. Think about every flight you've ever been on. You're flying over other people's property. And if those people own infinitely upwards from their property, you can't cross that without trespassing if you don't get their permission. So anytime a plane would need to fly anywhere other than the airport, you would have to ask the person who owns that property for permission. Or you would have to pay for a permit. Or you would have to get all the permission you could and fly this weird route around all of these properties to make sure you didn't break the law or you didn't trespass and weren't subject to any kind of civil liability. So this case, which started with just some chickens, 
modified a centuries-old legal doctrine, which may seem a bit drastic for chickens, but at the same time, it's what really allowed aviation to take off in the United States. I mean, without this case, we never really would have been able to establish this travel system that we have in the United States that allows us to fly across country or even take short flights. Now, it probably would have evolved some other way or perhaps Congress would have addressed it eventually. But this, I, I don't know if I want to call it foresight. I don't know really how to think of it, um, honestly, when you look at the 40s. But the way the Supreme Court acted in this case is really has had lasting positive effects nationwide. Now, I do have three more cases that I want to talk about, but I, I, I want to take a quick break. Um, mostly because I need to review these cases a little bit more. Um, and also because I feel like taking a break. And it keeps me from rambling too much about legal issues. So, take a quick break and I'll be right back. a good break. Didn't do much. Kind of just stayed in the same place, actually. But I'm ready to talk about these last three weird cases, and I'm going to try not to get into them too much. Now, the first one I want to talk about actually has a pretty fun name. It's the United States versus 95 barrels, more or less, alleged apple cider vinegar. That's the actual name. 95 barrels, more or less, of alleged apple cider vinegar was the defendant in this case, an item was the defendant. Not a person, an item. Think about the last time somebody sued an item. Think about the last time an item was charged with a crime. I mean, I'm sure you probably can't think of any. I couldn't think of any before I read this case. What's going on here is this was 1924. This was prohibition. And food regulation was still in its infancy. The Douglas Packing Company was selling a product that they called apple cider vinegar. But instead of making it from fresh apples, like most manufacturers did, they made it from dried apples. Not a huge distinction, if you ask me. And to be honest, the final product was basically the exact same. But the FDA claimed that the company was mislabeling it. And it turns out the Supreme Court agreed. They said, yeah, that's that's mislabeling. That's not what apple cider vinegar is. Apple cider vinegar is made from fresh apples. Which seems like it shouldn't be that big of a deal. But here's the thing. Mislabeling was really the FDA's main target at the time. They didn't have the ability to review products before they were sent to market. It, the power just hadn't been given to them yet. It wasn't until 1938 when they could start doing that. And so this really gave the FDA teeth. If this is prohibition, alcohol is being snuck into the country. And the only way the FDA is going to be able to stop that is by being able to, being able to claim that these things are mislabeled. That's their only shot here. And without this ruling, the FDA just wouldn't have the same kind of power to claim things are mislabeled. In fact, in 1937, a few years later, a toxic fake medication was, had killed like a hundred people 
and the FDA was able to seize the unsold bottles because they declared them mislabeled. And this case is really what gave them the ability to go after those kinds of things. Not a hugely interesting case, honestly. Um, the big thing that makes it weird is the name. I, The name kind of got me going. That's what piqued my interest. Not going to lie to you. The second case is Employment Division versus Smith. Um, not an interesting name. Just going to go ahead and tell you that. And the legal issue, not super interesting either. I mean, maybe it is. What happened is you had two men who were fired from their jobs as substance abuse counselors because of drug use. The thing is, they were fired for using peyote, a hallucinogenic drug that is commonly used in Native American religious ceremonies. And both of these men were official members of the Native American church. So their claim was that their activity should have been protected by the First Amendment. Um, the court rejected that argument. They said, hey, your religious beliefs don't exempt you from following the law, just so you know. And like I said, that part isn't the super interesting part of this case. The, the legal aspect of this case isn't super interesting. It's the people, to me, that are interesting. Substance abuse counselors who are fired for using illegal drugs. Now, they obviously viewed peyote in a different light as other drugs. It's just interesting to me um, they're how the mental gymnastics they must have been doing. Lily always talks to me about how you can't justify your substance use. You can't look for excuses for your substance use. And this is something that she talks about with her clients quite often. And it just seems to me that these two men were clearly seeking to justify their substance use. Oh, it's a religious thing. I only do peyote because it's religious. And to me, that feels the same as people who are like, well, I only drink in social situations. Or I only um, do cocaine when I'm just super tired. I need to something to pick me up and it just it just feels like a justification and i i just think it's interesting that this case worked its way up to the supreme court i, I just think it's kind of fascinating now this last case it has a fun name that one i won't deny and i think the legal issue is kind of interesting this is the church of the lakumi babalu aye versus the city of hialeah now, apologies if I mispronounced any of that. But this case is fun. I'm not going to lie to you. In the case of the Church of the Lukumi Babalu Aie versus the city of Hialeah, a man named Pichardo Ernesto sued a city in Florida for violating his religious rights. Now, the Church of the Lukumi Babalu Aie is a church that practiced Santeria. And if you don't know, Santeria is a religion based on African and Catholic traditions, which was popular in Cuba before it made its way to the United States. And this religion requires its priests to perform certain sacrifices, animal sacrifices, as tributes to powerful saints and demigods. Now, the city of Hialeah in Florida 
was a little, how should we say, preoccupied, possibly disturbed or put off, that's the better term, put off by this foreign religion taking hold in its city limits. And the city sought to somehow prevent this religion from spreading or people from practicing this religion inside the city. And so they passed a city code, a health code, that prohibited animal sacrifice within city limits. And it didn't directly prohibit animal sacrifice. It just limited the killing of animals to very specific situations. And religious situations did not fall within that approved category. Um, super interesting that a city would do that. It seems on its face very clearly in violation of the First Amendment. Just super clearly. Um, but the city did it anyways. And they made some interesting claims in this lawsuit. They said, you know, we're concerned about the health and safety of the citizens of our city. We don't think it is safe for non-food workers to be slaughtering these animals. Or they also, let's see, they also made the argument that, hey, um, don't think it's super healthy to have these animals here to be sacrificed. Also, they made some animal cruelty arguments. They just made a bunch of arguments to defend this health code that they had passed. And, uh, yeah, they lost. The Supreme Court said that this statute discriminated clearly against Santeria, and therefore was a violation of the First Amendment. And I guess the part that's so weird to me is not necessarily that the city tried to limit somebody's religious exercise or the exercise of their beliefs. That happens. Um, it's more the manner that they went about it. It wasn't discouraging people from moving there. It wasn't... I don't know. The resistance wasn't super visible, I guess you could say. The interesting part to me is that they passed something in the health code as a way of trying to limit the spread of this religion. And that's just interesting to me. It, I guess the best way to think about it is if you had um, a city that passed something in the health code that prohibited any type of baptism. Uh, because they said it just wasn't healthy to have people in the water together. Um, or something like that. I'm just kind of spitballing here. That would clearly be very religiously oriented and religiously motivated um and that's exactly what happened here the city took a very religiously motivated approach in expanding this health code and the supreme court really just ripped it to shreds they just shut it down and this case is actually a pretty commonly studied case in law school when it comes to religious liberty and it the supreme court established that hey if you're going to try to pass something to limit the free exercise of religion, you better have a pretty dang good reason for doing so. And they, I mean, they just poked holes and shot down every argument the city made. And yeah, it's just interesting to me. I guess, long story short, if you just wanted to skip ahead and not really listen to this, a city in Florida tried to limit religious practices through its health code. 
and it didn't work. And to me, there's something beautiful about that. Now, those are my weird cases that I wanted to talk about. Hopefully you thought they were interesting. I think they're interesting. If you didn't find them interesting, that's too bad. You listen to the whole podcast anyways, if you're hearing this now. I like the law. I think it's interesting. There's a lot of other cases I could have talked about. Like I said, I re-recorded this episode because I just wanted to keep it more lighthearted and to talk about some more unknown but interesting aspects of the Supreme Court. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Real Vio Podcast discussing some of my favorite Supreme Court cases. And a special thank you to my professors who had me read these cases in the first place, because, honestly, I would never have known about them otherwise. Hopefully this episode has made you consider the importance of the Supreme Court, even though we talked about some weird cases. Often the Supreme Court gets cases right. Sometimes they get them wrong. And sometimes they're just plain old weird. Moving forward, I hope you'll consider the role the Supreme Court has played in your life, personally, at work, in your religion, or whatever it is. Each one of these cases we talked about had real, lasting effects on the lives of everyone involved. And I don't want us to forget that. Sometimes when we hear about these Supreme Court cases in the news or in podcasts like this one, we forget about the impact that they had on people. But I just want you to remember... The Supreme Court isn't final because it's always right. The Supreme Court's right simply because it's final. The Real Beal Podcast is an individual project. I'm the writer, host, editor, producer, sound technician, snack director, and dog walker. But most importantly, thanks to my wife, Lily, for giving me the motivation to create this podcast in the first place. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Keep it real, Beal.